a very warm welcome. I appreciate that so much. It's a privilege to speak to you and to go through God's Word together. What a gift. God's Word has the ability, unlike any other book, Harry Potter aside, to change your life (laughs) irrevocably. And I hope that today we can go through God's Word and learn something new about an amazing topic which I think can define the rest of our lives if we let it, and that is on a topic about love. But before I get started, I don't want to alarm you, but out in the foyer, out in the foyer, our foyer, just out those doors, is a little thing that is miraculous and magical. It's about this tall, it's silver, it's got buttons on the top, and when you put a cup underneath it and press a button, water comes out. You're not that impressed. You push a button and water, fresh water that's, co- that's cold, it could be spark- it's sparkling, it could be sparkling or still. You're not that impressed. Okay, I know someone who would be impressed, Moses. Imagine Moses turned up to the front of it. Now he's starting to get impressed. Imagine he just turned up with his flaming chariot, Aaron, rest of his staff, literal staff, and he comes to the front doors and, well, to start with, that's complicated because the front doors open by themselves. He'd never seen that before. He's an Old Testament prophet. Aaron just stepped aside. These transparent walls open by themselves. He steps, it would have been perfect at the Red Sea. It is... There's parts by them. He walks through into the foyer and then he spots that little magical, amazing machine. What is that? Victor's behind the desk. It's, it's just water. You push the button, water comes out. Sparkling or still? Moses, salt or fresh? No, sparkling or still? It's cold. It runs forever. Moses, you don't have to hit it with a stick. No, 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 you don't. You just push the buttons on the top. It comes. It come. Now, I went to use that this morning, and first world problems, someone who'd used it before me had still water, and I wanted sparkling. And if you've ever pushed the sparkling button, and someone has had used it before with still, you get a little bit of still water just before you get sparkling. That is so frustrating. On the scale of one to impossibly difficult, that has to rank a, about minus eight. First world pro- Show of hands, who's had a first world problem in the last week? I'm talking like your iPhone charger doesn't reach quite next to your bed. You've put your cereal in a bowl and you've run out of milk. You've run out of milk. First world problems, they are everywhere. They happen in our foyer, even with things that are magical things that we should be impressed by, but over time, we've just forgotten just how incredible they really are. In fact, there's a whole cottage industry designed to cater to solve first world problems. If you're anything like me, every now and then, you find yourself watching late night TV, and you see all those ads that come on that solve all of your first world problems. Now, as you look through those different things, I'm pretty sure that you would consider some of those being (laughs) rather irrelevant or in the scheme of things, things that we shouldn't really fixate upon. Show of hands, who's experienced any of those in their life? Yeah, the jar one, can't believe, and the phone one, I can't believe it. When it comes to certain things in our life, first world problems can dominate, and they take over when they really shouldn't. They take up a lot of our time and effort and energy. 
sparkling water from a tap when it should be still water. Those sorts of things irritate us. And we might spend a bit too much time, effort and energy on them. And I think sometimes if we think of those things that we should probably spend a bit more time on, love is in a category where it can quickly leak into just being a first world problem. We don't spend too much time thinking about it. It irritates us perhaps if it doesn't go the way we want. And we might not spend enough time trying to work out how love can impact us, can change us, can transform us into the likeness of Jesus, and then allows us to use that same love to transform the lives of other people. So we want to spend a moment this morning talking about love. We're going to move from the irreverent to the reverence of looking at Scripture. If you have your Bible handy, you might want to have it open. And to to prepare our hearts, I just want to pray for us as we begin. Lord Jesus, we submit to your word. We submit to you our first world problems. I ask you to remind us of the things which aren't frivolous, but are potent. Those things which are defining that very thing, love, that you established so long ago with a new standard that we carry today that can change our own lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So love, origins, characteristics, application. If you have your Bible there, and I do hope you bring your Bible. An old preacher once said to me when I didn't bring my Bible to church, he said, Oh, do you know it? (laughs) And ever since then, I've always brought my Bible to church. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 7. We're looking at verses 36 down to 48. In the NIV, it helpfully calls this passage, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That was a tradition at the time. They didn't have chairs. They weren't invented for thousands of years. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, the teacher of the law who had invited Jesus to his house, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50, a large amount, a small amount. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debts of both. Jesus questioned, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. You've answered, you've judged correctly. Jesus said. Then he turned toward the, toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did, did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured out perfume on my feet and the amount she poured out would have been a significant chunk of someone's annual wage. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, 
but he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then one of the most profound verses in scripture, he turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. I want you to picture yourself in that scene. Where are you in that scene? Are you standing outside looking in, considering the events unfolding in front of you? Are you reclining at the table, asking questions? There's possibly a part of us, and I can put myself in this category from time to time, judging a person who's presented themselves to Jesus. They're not such a good fit, are they? They're not the best choice for that ministry position. I really think you should have chosen somebody else because that person is a sinner. Sometimes we put ourselves in that category. Most pertinently though, most importantly perhaps, do you find yourself as the woman sitting in front of Jesus? Just, just imagine her demeanour for just a moment. She's known as being a sinner as having a sinful past. The Bible doesn't give us much detail of that. People have postulated over time what that might mean. It probably was obvious. And so people knew she was in that category. The fact that she could spend time with men in an enclosed space and go through these motions was quite rare, but they tolerated it. And what's her response when she sees Jesus, a man who she knows is someone who has come to change the world and she's seen it with her own eyes. She's heard the stories a great teacher, a light to her darkness. How does she respond? She weeps. She realises deep in her heart that perhaps this man contains something in him that she could never do by herself. The chance for liberation from that darkness that sits in her own heart. She weeps. And what's Jesus' response? Away from me, sinner. Come back when you're better. I'm going to wait till you start behaving before you can believe in me. No. He uses this as an amazing teaching moment. And he says, do you see that her sins are forgiven and she loves much? Do you see how she understands where she's come from and what she wants to aspire to? Do you see how the depth of her understanding of the concept of love transforms her into a person who will in turn love much? And this is my core thesis about love. It is difficult, near on impossible, to love until you understand how much you are loved. I'll say that again. It is near impossible, difficult, to love until you understand how much you are loved. Of all the people in history who could have said something about this moment, who could have said something to teach and to train and to admonish, who could have said something to define how love's origins can make its name known in the sky and written in the clouds and then invade history, it's Jesus. The one person who can speak to this woman and not just say, I accept the love you extend to me, but to turn around and in a supreme act of love that would define history, say your sins are forgiven. Jesus defines for us what love is and would go on to do that 
as he would die on the cross and demonstrate tangibly what it would mean for love to change someone irrevocably, irreversibly, in a way that would allow them to respond with love. Our challenge as Christians, our challenge as believers, our challenge as those people who might be looking on to Jesus is to consider if we can be the sort of people who carry his love and then demonstrate it to the people around us. Scripture says this in lots of different ways. It posits that we are loved so that we can love just as much as we are forgiven so we can forgive others. But what about the characteristics of love? What does love look like? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to take a sip of this delightful sparkling water. Mm. There's a bit of fresh water in that. It's a bit still as well. 1 Corinthians 13. Who's been to a wedding before? A few of us. Just a few of us. If you have been married, I hope you put your hands up. You have been to a wedding, just so you understand. 1 Corinthians 13 gets wheeled out at weddings. It's a great passage. It talks about love. It talks about the characteristics of love. And those things are important to know. But whenever I read this passage... And I don't think it was read out at my wedding, but if it was, I would have had the same feeling. I feel incredibly deficient. Let's just read through it. I'm going to read through it, and I'm going to see how far you sink into your seat. I will now show you the most excellent way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. Sinking further. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. That amazing German word schadenfreude, taking pleasure in the pain of others. It doesn't do that. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects Now, I love words like this. They're imperatives, superlatives. They will happen. They always happen. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, show of hands, who's got those under control? Oh, just one other message. Well done. I'll talk to you afterwards about how that happened. Show of hands... Which one of those annoys you? If, you? if you look through it, patience. A bit annoying sometimes, isn't it? Especially when other people are more patient than you are and you realise you should be and you're not. Kindness. Another one. Envy. Boastful. Pr- the list goes on. When you read these, you can feel deficient. You feel like you've lost something because this is the aspirational standard that we're called to and you're, ne- you're never going to make it. You're never going to to make it. A newsflash, you won't make it. The list is purposefully designed to be the exemplar, to be the superlative, to be the unattainable standard. And why is that? Because we are love? No. Because God is love. Because God is love. What Jesus demonstrated to that woman was an example of all of these things in practice. I, wash you, I watch you wash my feet with your hair and your tears and I patiently wait. I love you without being self-seeking. I gently bring you to a place of correction 
And like so many other people, including yours and mine's heart, he brings us to that place where he forgives us and sets us free. God is love. We cannot love with these things on this list until we have the love of God in us and until we know what God's love is. One begets the other. It stems from, it comes from the other. The characteristics of love. But what about the application of love? Let's turn to James chapter 3, if you've got that in your Bible. James is an interesting book. It um, defines a few things for us as Christians. It was ripped out famously, according to legend, by Luther, who thought that it said some things about faith which didn't match up with the rest of the Bible. But one thing James reminds me of, of nothing else, it talks very explicitly about what we should do and not just what we should say. And I love that. I sometimes get very caught up in saying things and appearing in a certain way. And I forget that I should do things. And James says explicitly, I don't care what you say. I'll look at what you do and it will tell me what you believe. And so when it comes to love, when we look at the book of James in that context, we realize that love very much is a verb, a doing word, something that we should do. But how to love properly? Where can we start? What is an example of an application that we can put into practice right now about love? This is a big one. Taming the tongue. James chapter 3. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, perfect person, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, little tiny bit in a big horse, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by big winds, they are driven by a little small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Extreme words. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. This should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Friends, we we should leave the delivery of salt and fresh water, of sparkling and still water to the magical fountain in the foyer. And it should not be in us. We should not praise God in here and curse men out there. Or even worse still, praise God in here and curse people in here. That is not to be. We're not to be those sorts of people. 
We're to be the sorts of people that understand that we have been forgiven much. And so we forgive much. We've been loved much. So we love much. And one of the most honouring ways we can do that is with our mouths. I challenge you in this week that's coming to be encouraging to someone who you would normally feel discouraged by. To overtly love someone with your words and move them to a place perhaps where your brain does not want to go and your heart is reluctant to of compassion rather than anger. Is there someone in your life who defines frustration for you? That person who is not a needle in a haystack, they are like a needle in your eye. And every time you spend time with them, you think, oh, you grate me the wrong way. And it feels like you're doing it deliberately. I encourage you this week to exercise that quality of Jesus, that characteristic that says, I will love them even though their sin is great before me or before God. What a potent place to be in. Origin, characteristics, application, love. Friends, I encourage you as you consider what these words mean for you, that you'll realise afresh that you are loved. As you read through scripture, and my dear mum reminded me of this morning, I said to her, it's difficult to preach about love. There's so much stuff you could talk about. And she said, the word of God is a love letter from start to finish, so I'm not surprised. If you read God's word, if you spend time with his people, even the unlovable ones, you'll realise that God loves you. And I want to pray specifically for three types of people this morning. The first person is someone sitting here who may not know Jesus. Maybe you are standing on the edge of the crowd. You're looking at what's happening and it's perplexing. I was at this stage once, looking in. Who is that guy? How can he say something like that? I get it that he can say something wise about teaching, but sins are forgiven. What? What? Only the Son of God could say that. That is that Jesus that we follow. I want to pray for people today who do not know Jesus. Secondly, I want to pray for an an interesting group of people. Trust me, I put myself in this category. And that is your heart's got a bit hard. You feel a sense that there are sinners around you, but you are not one yourself. I wake up every other morning with people that I work with, and I think that from time to time. God, rebuke and correct them, but not myself. I want to pray for those people who feel their heart has been hardened to people around them, that your heart will soften. Not necessarily that your behaviour will change, but more importantly, that you'll recognise that God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And thirdly, I want to pray for those people who feel like they are the woman. You feel like your sin is too great. You feel like when you stand in front of Jesus, he'd condemn you for who you are and not liberate you and set you free. I know that position. Position of darkness, a feeling of depression, a feeling that nothing will wash away the sin that is on your hands. I want to pray for those three groups of people. 
And after we've finished praying, we'll open up the altar at the front here. You can come. The team will be available to pray for you. I encourage you to take the opportunity. I can guarantee in this room, it's not even a statistical anomaly, but 100% of the people in this room need Jesus and they need to know this love. And so if you come forward to be prayed for, you'll be prayed for by somebody else who is not better than you, but who might understand it a little better and can help you as they pray for you. So let's all stand to our feet. We'll pray for those three groups of people and then we'll have a ministry time together. Lord Jesus, I pray for those people who don't know you. And if you're standing here today while everyone has their heads down and they're contemplating their own position before Jesus and you want to know that Jesus, you want to seek him out, perhaps you've drifted away from him, perhaps you've never come to him, Perhaps you've seen him from a distance and you really want to get close, but you're not sure how. I just ask you, while everyone else has their head down, just stick your hand in the air because I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about making that decision to step from darkness to light. If you feel a sense that Jesus is calling you right now, place your hand in the air. I'll see it and we can talk afterwards. Lord God, we thank you for your salvation that sets people free, that calls them from darkness into light. We thank you for those who've made that decision to follow you. We pray you bless them for all of their days. Second group of people, I want to pray for those who have a hardness of heart. Perhaps, and my past is like this, you've had a religious upbringing. Religious, not faith-based. And that set in you this course in motion that said that we are somehow better because we know things that other people don't know. It makes you a little bit judgy. Perhaps you're like that. Perhaps something else has crept into you over time, a bitterness, a sense that the people around you have disappointed you, aren't worthy of your love. God does not condemn you in that moment. He says, I understand, but let me set you free. Lord Jesus, we pray for those amongst us. I pray for myself that with a hardness of heart comes a distance from you and we want to be close to you. Lord God, I pray that you convince in whatever way is necessary the people who have that position that they are loved, that you would enter their heart and soften it, Lord Jesus, through your power, by your Holy Spirit. And as they are transformed, I pray that they will go on to be people who love greatly those around them. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. And finally, that third group. And friends, we're all in this category before Jesus. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all desire to be righteous but aren't. I want to pray for those people who feel as though their sin is too great. Friends, that is never the case. I talked with my eight-year-old just last week and he said, hypothetically, which is not a word an eight-year-old should use, hypothetically, if I took a plane full of people and flew them into the sun, would you still love me? And I said, yes, it would be very difficult, but I would. And he said something that I want to pray into. He said, that doesn't make sense. And that's absolutely true. It doesn't make sense. 
It doesn't make sense that your sin, which would cause you to weep before Jesus, would be washed away. That he could turn to you and say, your sins are forgiven. It does not make sense. But Lord in heaven, we thank you that even though we cannot logically deduce that it doesn't make sense, we know it to be true. And Lord, we cling to that grace today. We cling to the promise that you love us regardless of who we are and of what we've done. Lord, I want to pray for a particular person in this room who feels as though their sin has been so egregious, it's been so divisive, it's so heavy, and they feel they cannot put it down. I pray for that person that you know well. Lord Jesus, remind them powerfully right now that they are loved. Remind them that Jesus has set them free, that he sees them, and that there is light beyond their dark position. We pray that together in Jesus' name. As I mentioned, we'll have the ministry team down the front. We'd love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you. It would be, it would be a privilege to pray for you. If you don't know Jesus, if you've had an issue where your heart is hard, or if you'd like to come before him and say once again, Lord God, I receive the grace you freely give because of my sin. The band will play. We'll be down the front here praying and then we'll wrap up the service together.